Chief Economic Advisor is a celebrated post in India. Dr. Manmohan Singh, who went on to become the country's Prime Minister, was India's Chief Economic Advisor between 1972 to 76 under then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. Dr. Raghuram Rajan was International Monetary Fund's Chief Economist and Director for Research before he became Chief Economic Advisor under Dr. Manmohan Singh and later under Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Another leading economist Kaushik Basu who was also CEA under Dr Singh in UPA2 later became chief economist of the World Bank In other words only economists of the highest caliber have been entrusted with this crucial duty by most governments However despite their exemplary expertise their performances have varied as it involved various other factors too like the prevailing economic challenges the ruling government's overall policies election agendas global issues and so on dr arvind virmani who was a top performing chief economic advisor handled the crucial post between 2007 to 2009 in upa1 under dr manmohan singh and could guide the economy to one of its best performances ever Later Dr Arvind Virmani was appointed as executive director at the International Monetary Fund Washington DC representing India as its ambassador He has also served on this position at Bangladesh Sri Lanka and Bhutan Other significant roles that Dr Arvind Virmani has handled include principal advisor planning commission member telecom regulatory authority of India appellate tribunal for SEBI act and other notable posts on the ac- academic side of his career he was affiliate professor at george mason university and a distinguished senior fellow at the school of public policy cemp gmu a noted author in economics and other related areas dr arvind virmani has published 33 journal articles and 20 book chapters in the areas of macroeconomics growth and finance international trade and tariffs and international relations his books include the sudoku of india's growth from unipolar to tripolar world multipolar transition paradox propelling india from socialist stagnation to global power and accelerating growth and poverty reduction a policy framework for india's development currently dr arvind virmani is a chairman of foundation for economic growth and welfare egro a non-profit multidisciplinary public policy organization engaged in independent high quality research in the areas of macroeconomic policy public welfare national security and diplomacy seasonal magazine recently interviewed dr arvind virmani for our cover story urgent cures for the covid-19 economy we have with us dr arvind virmani who is the chairman of the foundation for economic growth and welfare dr virmani many thanks for joining us to discuss this very pertinent subject uh, if i can begin by asking you Uh, you know the world is in a dilemma with medical experts calling for an extension of the lockdown and the business community calling for its end as an economist where do you stand between this life and livelihood debate especially in the indian context so the way i look at it is that lockdown uh, was in india at least was a necessary shock therapy hmm. uh, what do i mean by that if you look at japan uh, there they have such a uh, great deal of uh, social solidarity etc that mere suggestions of governments are implemented rigorously uh, and with complete social participation mm. uh, you know we have a very contentious society where i think uh, the seriousness uh, of the pandemic situation was not 
being fully recognized by many sections of the society, uh, ranging from the top to the bottom. And therefore, in that sense, the shock, uh, the lockdown was shock therapy, and it was necessary. Uh, okay. However, it is very costly, and uh, it has to be phased out uh, as uh, as rapidly as possible. And uh, this requires this probably requires adjustment of the speed in different parts of the economy. And very quickly mentioned that there are a range of options. You know, it's not. Uh, useful at all mm. think of lockdown as uh, as a zero one option and uh, really right. the discussion should be about the uh, how to phase out over what sectors geographies uh, and of course uh, the basic elements of fiscal distancing will have to continue for a considerable amount of time even when okay. the lockdown is lifted right yeah so the next question is that the current lockdown has been unprecedented in human history, not even seen during World War II, and has resulted in production being cut to 80 to 90 percent in the world, as well as in India. What all will be lasting or at least lingering effects of this lockdown on the economy? The lockdown uh, is certainly unprecedented, but the estimate of uh, GDP reduction you have given is not correct, in my view. Uh, it, at the Foundation for Economic Growth and Welfare, we've, we've done estimates, we've been estimating, we've been working on both the pandemic in general, as well as its effect on, on GDP. And I can briefly tell you what our estimates suggest. Mm. The, if, the effect of the lockdown on the Indian economy is to reduce GDP by about 5% a month uh, and this 5% is of annual GDP. That is 5% of annual GDP per month of lockdown. So roughly within this financial year, we will have had a month of lockdown till May 3. And that means a 5% reduction, nothing like the 70, 80%. And just to give you an idea how we did it, mm. uh, uh, and uh, this is in a eGrow working paper the, uh, at our foundation, the, the output of our research, what we do is we divide the economy into three parts. The first part is the essential goods and services, which continued unaffected. The second part is the what I call the uh, the, the uh, contact services, but you think of as as tourism, travel, uh, hospitality, etc. And the final is the rest of the economy. So uh, basically, the essential goods and services have uh, have have been allowed to function in the lockdown. So only okay. the other two parts have been affected. Did you have okay, another sir. part to that? Yeah. Uh, yes, sir, I do. In a sense that if the crisis is deep, maybe not as high as 80 to 90%, I'm mm -hmm. sure that the usual approach won't work in reviving the economy. So what, according to you, are the most radical economic reforms India should be undertaking now on an urgent basis? So, uh, you know, very briefly, before I get to that, I think you had a question which probably I didn't hear. You, you had uh, talked about the after effects of uh, the lockdown. Yeah. And there are two things I really want to mention, which kind of then affect everything else we, we think about or do. One is the lockdown imposes a legal asymmetry which has to be addressed and not accentuated by unthinking state governments. What is the legal 
asymmetry. That is this, uh, as per our estimates, this uh, the uh, essential commodities and services is 40%. So the 60% has been shut down because of a government order. But their commitment, legal commitments remain. So if they, they are, uh, unless that is uh, nullified, you know, like paying rents, interest, debt, uh, uh, some of them have to keep 100% of their uh, workers. Others are uh, state governments are now randomly saying you have to pay 100% of salary. If you accentuate or keep this asymmetry, these firms will all go bankrupt and there'll be nothing left uh, after the crisis is over to give you to go back to uh, employment and, and GDP. So that is one thing which is very important, which public must understand. The second part is that, uh, is the, the poor, the, the people who uh, the government, you know, the, the survival which has to be ensured, but after, uh, even if survival is ensured, the marginal people who did have a certain amount of savings, you know, you and I may have a lot of savings, but there were a lot of people on the margin who are using up their savings. So there will be a large number of people whose personal savings uh, will be exhausted. The very poor who don't have savings, governments are trying to, uh, you know, uh, help them uh, to maintain food, etc. Now, coming to your uh, uh, your next question, uh, uh, the the way to think of it, well, actually, the first part I've already kind of addressed is that way to think of it is in three phases. The first one is this human survival I just mentioned. Uh, and the second one is business survival, which also I have indirectly mentioned. Now, your main question then relates to phase three, which is that once we, the lockdown, it, it, it's immediate phasing out, etc., and some relief recovery from the crisis is over, then it will be critical to ensure economy, economy recovers quickly and returns speedily to its long-term growth potential. Mm. And this is where your, your main question comes in. I think it's very, very important uh, uh, to, to do for government to use this opportunity to, uh, to both for short-term uh, addressing of issues plus for long-term uh, gains. For example, uh, tax reform, uh, GST and DCT, uh, direct tax code, personal income tax reform uh, is really critical for SMEs. So we are all talking every day about how important uh, how much the effect on SMEs, etc., is mm. there is one way to simplify the system now so it benefits SMEs in the short run, but also in the long term it actually increases the buoyancy of the whole tax system so that uh, over the next three years even the fiscal uh, issues will uh, will get uh, taken care of to a large extent. And there are of course mm. other things which we have talked about: agricultural trade. Uh, reform, uh, which is the uh, freeing of the domestic and uh, import-export policies, uh, mm. reform of SEs and Zs and CEZs. Again, uh, the, the pandemic has accentuated uh, this uh, move towards uh, to, towards uh, broadening and, and diversification of the supply chain, which kind of started a year or two ago uh, because of actions taken by the U.S. government. But this mm. opportunity is now even more expanded from our personal experience. You will recall that the API, the active uh, ingredients of drugs, uh, there was an issue there when the pandemic started in China. So the opportunities for diversification of supply chains are expanded. So we must use uh, free up land and labor laws in SEZs and CEZs, et cetera, 
to accelerate this process. Uh, thank you, sir. But uh, you mentioned something about uh, the uh, essential services. So here, what would be a more viable strategy? Would it be the mandatory or voluntary cut in prices of all essential products and services by the government as well as private companies? Or say, to focus a more tax rate approach, which is that you cut the GST rates on all basic essentials to below 5%. Uh, what do you think would be the right way to get out of the current lull in economic activity? So, uh, uh, I hope you don't mind my saying so, but this suggestion sounds to me like a solution looking for a problem. Essential goods economy is functioning with state governments ensuring that the poor who don't have savings to fall back on are provided with food and of cash. So that, uh, you know, that is not... Uh, the main reason for the depression of sentiments. If economic sentiment is depressed because many companies in lockdown sectors face bankruptcy. And if they face bankruptcy, they can't uh, hire people or, or keep their workers on their uh, payrolls and keep paying them. That is really one of the main reasons. Now, even after the lockdown is list, lifted, pandemic fears will ensure that public is worried of travel, tourism, hotels, restaurants, and retail outlets. So, uh, this problem uh, is going to remain for these sectors. However, the resumption of economic activity, production, employment, sales in the rest of the economy will have a big positive impact on sentiments. When you know people who, who are kind of sitting at home can see, I, I can assure you the few people I have talked to or I've had contact with, they, they are eager to now to get back to work. So actually yeah. there may be a big positive lift even from uh, you know people workers who you think are uh, you know happy to sit at home mm. and do nothing i don't think so i think people have realized that work is an essential part of life and therefore when the pandemic uh, fears uh, or the lockdown is lifted when there is a semblance uh, of uh, normalcy and every and most people every as i said everybody will not be able to immediately go back to work but this is going to have a big positive uh, effect on, on sentiments. Well, that's very fascinating, sir. Um, so how do you think the government should go about assisting the most hard-hit industries like travel and hospitality, say? And will reforms like allowing even multi-year advanced bookings in flights and hotels even help in this regard? Uh, what is your take on this? So uh, two parts. One, uh, reforms, uh, you know, uh, I, I mentioned GST, I'll come back to that. Uh, but what, how to uh, deal with the, the hardest hit uh, industries. So, uh, I, so it, it's going to be, you know, given uh, the fears of uh, transmission of the virus, unfortunately, these uh, parts of the economy, which uh, in our estimate, we have estimated constitutes roughly 10% of the economy. So it's not as if it's a huge part of the economy, but it's large mm -hmm. enough. So yep. when, when the restrictions on 50% of the economy are lifted along with the essential commodities which are already free, uh, so the, the, that 50% includes mining, manufacturing, construction services, uh, th that will be the boost which I was talking about. Now as far as the uh, how to help these sectors and plus the sectors which were already affected prior to this because of the slowdown in the economy, you know, things like autos, construction, capital goods, I think there is a, 
a number of uh, methods. The, the main one, of course, is that uh, RBI has already acted mm. to uh, free up uh, the flow of uh, credit uh, to, the, uh, to the system in different ways. The government uh, will also have to act to ensure that those things which are more risky uh, but still viable uh, get some kind of credit guarantees, etc., which will facilitate uh, banks who are risk averse from lending to these. And finally, a lot of the uh, tax and regulatory uh, issues which uh, bring these sectors uh, can now be lifted, at least for the period of the crisis. So the government will have to do its part in uh, perhaps uh, reducing the regulatory burden, in reducing temporarily reducing the regulatory and uh, and tax burden, and in some cases also increasing expenditures. The problem is you have to be very careful. If if the reduction in demand is because of fears of catching the virus, no amount of general government uh, injection of demand into the system is going to help these sectors. So mm. this uh, automatic, you know, we have this thing about thinking. It's not a normal time. I, I think you may, I mentioned this earlier yeah, yeah. that thinking in normal economic terms won't get you anywhere. You have to remember the special case why the pandemic crisis is different, and you have to design the policies to focus on the specific problems uh, which cannot be addressed by this general thing about. Okay, government should expand the fiscal deficit, spend more money, etc. That will not help this 10%. Mm. Uh, thank you, sir. Sir, um, I'm also a little curious to know whether the direct benefit transfer that has been experimented with the farmers under PM Kisan, whether policies like that should be substituted with in-kind transfers of essential food and toiletries with uh, companies being encouraged to supply such goods at a discount to the central and state governments. So, you know, I've been hearing for the last 30 years or more that fair price shops should be expanded to supply other com essential commodities besides grains and sugar. It's not happened because it's administratively infeasible, wasteful and inefficient, not because uh, there were not enough positive sentiments in this direction from all the whole political system. So I uh, have uh, argued for direct cash transfers to replace in-kind supply and dozens of subsidies and transfers, the opposite of what you're saying. E because each of these subsidies and transfers have its own leaky bureaucracy, high cost, and by now, after 50 years, uh, corruption and inefficiency. So. Uh, and I worked out in 2000, I, have a, I published a paper in 2009, which worked out uh, that paying direct uh, cash transfer directly into uh, cell phones. Well, the precise mechanism was worked out later, but uh, I had suggested uh, this in a 2009 paper uh, where I also proposed the uh, UID. Uh, but now I think the most efficient system available is to pay direct cash transfers into a cell phone linked to Aadhaar and loaded with mobile accounts. Mm. Why is this the best system? Why is this even better than uh, having uh, everybody having a bank account? Because if you go to rural areas or if you talk to people from rural areas, you'll find that many villages are still miles away uh, from any uh, bank branch, uh, ATM, and so on. So uh, having the bank in your hand is really hugely empowering. Uh, and in effect, you could give uh, 
cash subsidies, for example, directly to women uh, and link it to, with their children while the men get their own separate subsidy. So mm. uh, having that power to get the subsidy there. Now, reason why this has become even more uh, important in a pandemic is because we have seen that certain segments of the population are more affected. So once you have this Aadhaar link system in place, you can direct it. You can give more to a certain segment during the crisis uh, than you give generally, etc. So it's a highly flexible, uh, very efficient system, uh, which is uh, the one I, I have proposed for many years and, and would commend uh, again now. Yes, sir. So actually, that's exactly what the Jam Trinity is based on. And I'm, I'm sure the direct benefit transfer would only be upscaled in future. And also, the post office is also helping banks to deliver services door to door, so which is uh, something that social distancing will only make more prominent over time. Right. So I'd now like to shift to a more macro aspect, which is the rate of interest in the Indian economy. Do you think that the rates can be cut further so that the corporates can avail loans at at least 4%? Some experts have even called for providing loans at 0% of rate uh, interest rate to MSMEs and other such hard hit sectors for a short term. Is that viable? So in a crisis of this magnitude, the real rate of interest uh, uh, should be negative in my view. Uh, and you know, as uh, and, and I have been saying for some time that the uh, the problem in the world, even from last year, is going to be uh, another bout of deflation. The pandemic merely uh, accentuates this worldwide and domestic deflation as it intensifies. Normal rates will have to be nominal rates will have to be reduced. However, uh, I you know, uh, given my uh, I've dealt with RBI uh, for years and years, I would. Uh, let the RBI take the call on whether it should be done ahead of the reduction in inflation. I'm pretty clear that there will be a deflation, that nominal interest rates will have to be reduced, but whether they should be advanced, I think the RBI is in a best position to uh, take that call. In the meanwhile, it's imperative that RBI ensure there is adequate short, medium and long-term uh, liquidity. We have found, uh, again, there is research, not my own research, but uh, the latest research, and this is something uh, which uh, proves something I have been saying for many decades, that uh, adequate liquidity is absolutely is, is actually promotes uh, speed of transmission of, of repo rate uh, changes. Uh, this is something people never believed because in the advanced countries, there's no such thing. But for India, I have repeatedly said that medium long-term liquidity is very, very important. So uh, uh, again, now I think the uh, new the RBI under this governor understands this uh, clearly. Mm. Uh, the the third part, which relates more to MSMEs, is that government has to uh, backstop the RBI by providing some kind of uh, collateral guarantees for lending to sectors like MSMEs. Why? Because mm. banks now, with the actions taken by RBI, banks now have enough liquidity, but they are very hesitant to lend to uh, sectors like um, uh, or sets of industries like MSMEs, which they generally are considered uh, more risky. So here, some kind of a risk sharing with the government uh, has been shown to be the best way uh, of, of, uh, of incentivizing the banks. Hmm. Now, uh, 
in addition to this, the, the RBI uh, also has to ensure that government securities uh, interest rates don't rise. And the reason is that uh, government interest rates are the uh, is the kind of the pyramid on which the rest of the interest rate structure is built. It's it's known as the risk-free rate. So no. if you allow that rate to rise, then the whole structure rises, and you will contradict the whole purpose which I have just outlined. So, a related question. Uh, in fact, so uh, uh, you've clearly kind of laid out uh, uh, how India should be looking at uh, reforms at this stage. Uh, but how would you say uh, deal with issues such as unemployment benefits or universal insurance? And is that expected to fare much better in tackling the economic side of this crisis? Yeah. Well, that's a good uh, question, uh, and a little history uh, will help people who who seem to think the discussion has started with this UPI. A lot of people seem to think that UPI is some uh, you know, new and revolutionary idea. Right. India was the first country in the world to publicly proclaim in 1960s the objective of Garibi Atau. Yeah. So the first country in the world. In 1970s, uh, the Indian government announced the objective change. It kind of got modified. Hatao ni So poverty alleviation is the thing we must do while it will take a long time to remove poverty and yeah. we continue to uh, bemoan the existence of poverty in the 1980s and 90s uh, even though uh, poverty started to decline in the 90s and then this decline accelerated in the 90s why because growth picked up there was a big acceleration in per capita income growth in the 90s and a further 50 percent acceleration in the 90s so the first thing to remember is that the best way to eliminate poverty is to faster growth. Now, coming more directly to your question, uh, with that as background, in a paper published in 2006, I showed that poverty could be eliminated using the funds budgeted for the three largest government anti-poverty programs. So instead of poverty alleviation, you could actually eliminate poverty using just the funds which were being uh, spent already Right. So, uh, what's the magic? Uh, that was a time when I suggested uh, this this uh, formation of a UID, the, the unique ID, and a UID linked poverty el elimination uh, system uh, that that uh, can be instituted over the next four years, uh, mm -hmm. and it, itself it, it, it's proved. I mean, it, you know, it is more and more feasible given that we now have right. a, a, a structure. The only new thing I've added to this. Uh, since that time is that, uh, you know, that at that time it was focused only on the, on poverty as measured, uh, the, the poor as defined formally by the planning commission and others. Now I think it needs to include, uh, be extended to include all the citizens and the way to do it in my view, and I have a, again, a article on this is by making part of a net income transfer or a negative income tax system which meshes uh, the, the uh, cash transfers, direct cash transfers to the less well-off, uh, to the income tax paid by the others. So it's a continuum. What is the advantage of it? It preserves the incentives. You know, most systems have a, a problem on the edges. That is, uh, when you go from receiving subsidies to paying taxes, there's a lot of problem and confusion on, on that margin. So what this negative income tax does uh, is to integrate these two systems so that there is a smooth progression of people getting a gradual reduction in, 
in, in transfers and then after a while starting to pay uh, taxes. Mm. Uh, so now we've already talked about how RPI has injected one lakh crore of liquidity and also the reduced interest rates. Recently, government has also given firms a three-month moratorium on loan payments, but there are also some academicians who are mulling newer ideas. One such idea has been proposed by Miss um, Anisha Sharma from Ashoka and NYU's Marty Subramaniam, who give a unique idea to revive the India's MSME sector. They say that there should be a government special purpose vehicle, GSPV, which can provide arm's length pseudo equity funding to these firms of say 25% of their average revenues of the business in the past three years, and which can later be brought back by the firm at a predetermined price. The advantage here being that the firm is getting interest-free funds. Do you think that this is a feasible idea? So, uh, you know, I generally don't like to comment on others' ideas and be critical. So let me start with uh, some simple things which uh, are consistent with what I've just said uh, earlier. I, I will come to that. Uh, firstly, uh, you know, uh, the, the simplified GSD, GST, which is as close uh, uh, to a uniform rate as is feasible and practicable in India, would bring all MSMEs into the GST and into the credit system. How would it do that? Because once they are all, it's simple enough that it does not impose extra costs and extra difficulties which the current system does, they will be happy to enter that system. That is the, was the original design of a simplified GST. Now, once they are formally in the system, if you have dealt with uh, SMEs and uh, talked to bankers as I have, I've been on the boards of several public sector banks when I was in government, you realize that in the old days, they did not have a cash trade because so much of their operation was in number two, as we used to call it then. So once you have a simple GST and MSMEs enter this system, then it becomes virtually automatic and easy to give credit based on their GST history. So that is the first thing I, I would say that it's one of the many reasons why GST, simplified GST is so critical to the whole system. The second point I would say is that uh, the history, you know, and again, I have studied growth history. Uh, I started by studying the success of Southeast Asian countries. And one of the things I learned there was that uh, in small incentives provided for uh, limited periods of time uh, in terms of credit were the best in promoting the objectives. The problem in India was we, we give these credit systems uh, and spread them out all over the place and they continue for decades and decades. Sadly, the effect of that is they take, get taken over by vested interests, right? So what happens eventually is the people who actually need the credit don't get it. It's only those who are willing to grease and provide under the table money get it. So any specific scheme I would be very worried unless it is time limited and has provided small amounts of credit. 
which is one of the reasons uh, as for the small small amounts of credit subsidy i interest subsidy which is why and again i'm sorry i don't want to blow my trumpet but this was one of my original papers which was published uh, right, right. when i was still uh, i think less than 30 years old okay where i showed that credit guarantees were the optimal uh, system of providing uh, subsidies to those who are not getting it so uh, i'll leave it at that Thank you, sir. I'm sure your insights are equally valuable to academicians as it is to us. So um, there's you. another debate about mm -hmm. the daily wage, wage workers. So the government and industry is in a tussle whether the workers should be paid wages. And even the courts are weighing on this argument. What are your views on this? Uh, sorry, I, I missed the second last line. To do what? Uh, pay sir, wages? So it is, so the daily wage workers who have to be mm -hmm. paid their wages. So while the industry would consider it as a loss for themselves, the government uh, feels that they should be paid uh, for they have no other source of income. So what do you think um, should be the way forward? Uh, so uh, uh, I, I, I don't know the exact details of what you're saying, but uh, let me make a presumption and then comment on it. When you're talking about Companies, you're probably thinking of corporations right? or whoever is saying it is probably thinking of corporations because there are also daily wage labors like if you need to do a construction, you need to do painting, you just go or send some contractor goes and picks them up and come to your house. I presume they're not talking about that because you don't know. Nobody knows who they are. They're on a daily basis and they disappear the next day. So presumption is that there are companies who are being supplied uh, people by their contractors, labor contractors, who are paid in a sense as a daily wage laborer. Now, here is the problem. There are some companies which for limited time may be able to afford this. Though I have heard of a foreign, I won't name the particular, a very specific company, mm. uh, which had immediately reduced their uh, employees' wage salaries. Uh, mm. Uh, I heard the salary part, but presumably it applied to wages also, to mm. uh, uh, by 30 percent. Okay, they said for six months your salary will be reduced by 30 percent. If you want to go and find another job, go and find one. So, um, mm. but leaving that aside, if, if, if there will be some companies for a limited amount and in their own interest will probably do that. There are two comments I have on this. You know, uh, I didn't give you the numbers because there was no time. Essential commodities no. constitute 40% of the economy and probably less than 30% of the budgets of all of us. So me, uh, probably less in normal times, uh, the, in this uh, time of lockdown, that's the only thing all of us are spending on, including mm. the workers you want to pay wages and salaries so you have to be very very careful they don't need their full salary they are sitting at home all they can consume is essential services and that is the job of the government you have to ensure what what does the government do if it cannot ensure survival of a of a worker or a human being which is imposed the issue is imposed by their own lockdown so yep. 
governments must understand it is their primary responsibility encouraging companies to go keep them and to pay as much as possible is a good thing but if it is imposed legally what you are saying is that if 70% of these company or maybe larger number cannot afford to pay they should bankrupt themselves that is a stupidity of the highest order mm. because those companies will not be around after the crisis to generate the employment that you will need so this logic of this economics is uh, uh, you know is beyond me frankly because if you kill all those companies they have no money they have to pay their rents you say no you have to keep on paying you are not suspending their rent payments you are not well to some extent debt repayment is suspended interest may be suspended but they have to come back and pay it right so you have all the legal obligations imposed on you including keeping your workers including uh, uh, paying them 100% wages i don't understand how these companies will survive some will survive but you will have a big disaster on your hands please those people who make these kind of recommendation please think about the economics before uh, you know doing something which uh, makes your heart feel good and destroys the economy uh, dr vimani on that note uh, i'd like to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts uh, very fascinating thoughts and uh, wide ranging views it was indeed a pleasure talking to you thank you thank you